go ahead and turn to First Chronicles chapter 29. And if you don't have a Bible handy, there's one in the pew next to you or around you. There, the words will be on the screen. And the title of the message today is Giving to Bless God. We don't typically think of giving like that, that we are giving in order to bless him because we so often think of him blessing us. And that's, that's why we're here. We want to be blessed by God. But in giving, we actually are giving in order to bless him. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and I said, well, I'm, I'm preaching on giving and I, I wanted a good illustration to point to as to why we give. And he said, well, you know, giving is what really shows where your heart is, where your devotion, your priorities, where those things lie. I said, yeah, I'm kind of having a, a hard time. He said, Jeff, I have the perfect story to tell you. You got you to share this, okay? He said, a few years ago when my dad died after the funeral, we were at our house. And he said, you know, I'm just guessing your church is mostly made up of Midwesterners right? Yeah, we're, we're all pretty much North Dakota, right? Or I'm from Illinois, I think, but we're all pretty much central, right? He says, yeah. He says, they're the worst. They have their, pri- they care about animals more than they do people. And he said, when my dad died, he goes, this, this proves it. He says, when my dad died, we were at, a f- at, we went to the funeral. We had this big family dinner. Everybody was in the kitchen and everybody was talking. And my mom says, I guess we should tell Cecil that, that Frank's never coming home now. And Cecil was their red bone dog that had been with the family for 15 years. And so they call the dog into the kitchen, and the mom gets down on one knee, and she, looks, she cups his little head in her hands, and she says, Cecil, I don't know how to tell you this, but Frank is dead. He's never coming home. And that dog just went into the living room, got up in Frank's old leather recliner that he'd set in every day after work for you know, 40 years, put his head on the headrest, closed his eyes, and that dog just died. Yeah, and you know how I know that people have their priorities twisted? Nobody reacted at all when I said Frank died. But everybody said, what? When the dog died. You care more about the dog than my fictional friend and his dead dad. That's not even my joke. I stole that from a stand-up comedian, but man, that hits, doesn't it? That's Hey, I did, because I heard that story myself, and I went, aw. And he goes, the, the comedian, just right as if he'd heard me through my iPhone, he goes, and you know how I know? You said, aw, when the dog died. My priorities were messed up in that moment. And it just shows you. And when we give, it shows us where our devotion is. It shows us where our priorities are. So we're going to read beginning in verse 10. David blesses Yahweh is what typically, or David blesses the Lord is what your Bible might say about this section of Scripture. We're only going to, we're going to stop in verse 19. It says, so David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our father, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. 
Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So now, our God, we are thanking you and praising your glorious name, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as willingly as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and foreign residents like all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Yahweh, our God, all the, uh, this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. And I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness. I, in the uprightness of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with gladness, I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. O oh Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and prepare their heart to you and give to my son Solomon a whole heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made preparation. I am not a big fan of preaching on giving. Many of you know this. You know that I worked for a pastor who, for a three-month span, made it a priority to tell the church they had to give. And we found out later he was getting a big cut of the uh, general funds, and that was a reason why he drove such a nice car and was able to continually preach on those things, apparently not with a clear conscience, I don't think, but he, he did. Uh, my salary, by the way, is determined by the board. It, doesn't, it isn't affected by those things. And I, I appreciate that. Um, I don't want that. Um, we are a church that gives generously over the years, and preaching on giving seems kind of, to me, a little redundant because we are a very giving, very blessed, uh, very blessed church. Um, but I did promise when I became your pastor that once a year I would preach on this topic at the request of the board, and, and I failed to do that last year. So you're going to get double in 2023. Uh, no, this will probably be the thing, but preaching on the topic of money is a very sensitive topic for many people. We usually, even here, we kind of laugh about it. We try to enjoy it. Uh, the messages like that used to, I would have everyone say, the church just wants my money all together as one person. We're not going to do that today, okay? But, but we used to do that. Because we're not just talking about money. Today we're giving, we're talking about giving as a whole, Money obviously comes into play, but I want you to understand this morning that giving can be a blessing. Giving to bless God is a blessing. In fact, that's the one thing I hope you take away from the message this morning. Giving to bless God is itself a blessing. How we give proves our priorities. Like I said, as Americans, sometimes we get our priorities very much out of whack, especially when it comes to money. But how we give proves those priorities. In fact, as we're, we're going to see as we go through, as we have received from the Lord, we give back to the Lord, to his church, in order to grow his church, to be a blessing to him and to his church. I don't want to dwell on that too much in the introduction, but I'll say it one more time. Giving to bless God is a blessing. Now, we go ahead, we look at the text. It says, So David blessed Yahweh in the sight of the assembly. 
And David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father, from everlasting to everlasting. So means we need to look back at least a little bit and understand that's one of those connecting words. And we're not going through the chapter verse by verse like we do when we go through the Gospel of Mark. So we need to go back and understand what this is connecting us to. That that David himself wanted to build the temple. He told the prophet Nathan, he said, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan said, that sounds great. But then the Lord spoke to him and said, wait a second, wait a second. David is a warrior. He's shed too much blood. I can't let him do that. It, he, he needs to let his son Solomon do it. So God said, Solomon will build the temple. But because of David's heart for God, God's going to align himself with David's kingdom. And we're going to see that play out. David's kingdom will, in essence, become God's kingdom. And we see that unfold here in our text. We see that unfold throughout scripture as the kingdom reaches its final king in Christ Jesus himself. But before his death, David is gathering all of Israel together, and he's going to pray over these materials, the beginning of the work. He's kind of setting the table, as it were, for Solomon to just come in, pick up the task, and run with it. So David blessed Yahweh. It means David praised the Lord. David praised him. And David does this in front of the entire assembly because he is... He has the whole nation gathered in front of him, and he is modeling for them what giving and what worship is to look like. David is the model worship leader. He's also the model king of Israel. When we give, we don't give to bless the the pastor or the church. We are giving to bless God. And David models that for us in this text. David shows us what that looks like. Like I said, David is kind of the standard for what every king who follows him is going to have to live up to. Most kings are compared to their own father before them, but every so often we're told how like or unlike David these men were. When Amaziah becomes king over Judah, for example, in 2 Kings 14, it says he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, yet not like his father David, he did according to all Joash his father had done. Now, it wasn't one of those 1990s sitcoms where Amaziah had two dads. Okay, clearly he's talking about his ancestor David and his immediate father. In other words, what it's telling us in that passage is Amaziah did okay, but he didn't do excellent like David his ancestor had done. Now, when we fast forward to Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 29, it says Hezekiah became king when he was 25. He reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the sight of Yahweh according to all that David, his father, had done. Hezekiah is very rare. He lives up to the expectations. He meets the standards of David. In fact, Hezekiah is going to have his own sin. He's going to have his own issues. But as a leader and as a king and as a man of prayer and a man of worship, Hezekiah will measure up to David. David is their model. David models worship and he models giving in this text. In the sight of all the assembly, David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father. Now, if you notice, David does not use the given or birth name for Jacob. He uses the covenant name Israel. 
This is a reminder to the people that God has established a covenant or a contract with Israel, with this nation. He is the God of our father or the God of our fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this really doesn't begin to set in in Scripture until around Exodus chapter 3 when God appears to Moses and he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses understands this is the God. This is the supreme being talking to me. And he hides his face. He's a, he's, he knows this is a powerful being speaking to him. God made a covenant with Abraham in chapter 12, but he made a very specific promise to Israel, to Jacob. In Genesis 28, uh, he had a dream and a ladder stood on the earth with its top, top touching heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed. And your seed, that's his descendants, your seed will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jacob likes that, right? That's a good promise. So what's he do? He says, Jacob made a vow. He makes a cut. He, he responds to this promise with a promise of his own. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me on the journey on which I'm going and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh will be my God. Now this stone, which I've set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And that's where we get the idea of tithe. A tenth or a tithe means a tenth. Jacob says he will give back to God because God keeps him. God provides for him. God furnishes his needs. Notice he says, if God will be with me. What's one of the names we use for Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us, right? So as Christians, there is a, a precedent for us to give, for us to worship in our giving because he is God with us. And that's kind of an interesting coincidence there. But Jacob goes on, he meets his wife. He gets cheated by his uncle. He ends up marrying her ugly sister. And I'm not being mean. That's what Leah being weak on the eyes, that's what it means. She was not pretty to look at, okay? So Jacob didn't find her attractive. And that's, that's the bottom line. So he feels cheated and he wanted Rachel. That's the one he wants to marry. So he ends up going on a journey back home. And during that journey, he's alone one night. And who shows up with a stranger who just decides to pick a fight with the guy? He starts to wrestle with this man. It says he wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. And we learn in that text, this is not some ordinary man. This is God in human flesh. This is what we would call a Christophonic verse, a Christ pre-incarnate Jesus in the flesh moment. And he's wrestling with Jacob. And that's why he's named Israel, because he wrestled or has striven with God. David knows all of this, and he knows Israel has had times where they have wrestled with God. They have been unfaithful. There are times where they still wrestle with God as a nation. So when he prays, he does not appeal to Yahweh as God of our father Jacob. He says, Israel. I say all that because it is a reminder that though we may strive with God, God ultimately will win. Always. And they're in a covenant with him. 
He is their God from everlasting to everlasting. Some translations say from eternity to eternity. And the idea is from eternity past to eternity future. That he is God always. At any point in time, he is to be their God. Now we read verse 11. It says, yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. When David said, yours, everything that follows belongs to God. Okay, we are to understand that. He is sovereign is the word we use. He is over everything. Greatness is the, is the Hebrew word, I almost said Greek. Ooh, okay, slow down. Greatness is the Hebrew word gedula, and that speaks of his great deeds, the things he has done, the miracles he's worked. The power is the Hebrew gevruah, and it speaks of his strength, and it's usually used in a military sense. The glory is tipperet, and that actually just speaks of his incredible beauty and all the ornament that surrounds God. And victory is the Hebrew word netzah, and that speaks of his eternal splendor. And then we come to the word uh, majesty, and that speaks of God's, it's the Hebrew word hod, and it speaks of his immense size, his power, his authority. This is the aspect of God that makes us go, whoa. It's what puts people in awe of him. And David, David is covering all of his bases here. All that God is, he is great, powerful, glorious, victorious, and his majesty. David says, indeed, everything in the heavens and everything, therefore, on earth belongs to God. Now, here's what I find impressive about that. David knows this because he studied the law, the Torah. David just understands this from reading the first five books of your Bible and having experienced God's work in his own life. Isaiah, Ezekiel, much later John the Revelator, John the Apostle, they all see this heavenly glory of God and they struggle to write what they've seen and, and to put it into, well, we wouldn't say English, into their language, into a human understanding of it. The Apostle Paul, when he's, and they just had visions, the Apostle Paul, when he writes about it, he is probably, we, we understand he's speaking of himself. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven and I know how such a man, I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. In other words, David understood the ununderstandable. You understand, he grasped that which cannot be grasped. Now he says man is not permitted to speak it. He saw God in actual heaven and he's sitting there right now and he says you're not permitted to speak about it. If we're not permitted to speak about it, how do so many people have heavenly visions and things and come back and write books about it, right? You kind of wonder if maybe they're defying God or making up a story, but one of those two things has to be happening. Paul says we're not supposed to talk about it. David doesn't go there and talk about it. He reads the law, and this is the conclusion he comes to. He's, he understands all the glory of God from understanding simply God's word. 
When we read and we understand, I spoke about this the week before Christmas, when we understand God's word, we begin to grasp his majesty. We understand that everything already belongs to him. Everything is God's. Now David continues, he says, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. Now we know from earlier, and I mentioned this a little already, David's kingdom is God's kingdom. David's kingdom aligns with God's kingdom in the descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth. God promises this to David through the prophet Nathan when he says back in chapter 17, he says, he shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him and he'll be a son to me and I will not remove my loving kindness from him as I removed it from him who was before you. That's clearly talking about King Saul, right? But I will cause him to stand in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, this is going to be fulfilled literally in Solomon, in a sense, physically in Solomon, but it is filled eternally and spiritually through Jesus of Nazareth, who we call the Christ. It's why when blind men call out to Jesus, they say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. It's because they understand this Messiah, this king is coming from the house of David. They knew this promise and they were clinging to that. The Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, he completely completes this prophecy. So David continues and he says, and you exalt yourself as head over all. It literally means you make yourself chief above all things. No one else has to. He does it. He has the power. He has the authority to do this. He has the might. And so David goes on. He says in verse 12, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. The riches, that is, that is people's material possessions, and honor, that is, that's people's reputation or personal importance. What we have to understand is those things come from God. We might work, we might try to earn them, but it is his hand that provides them. In his hand resides power, that's influence, and might, and that is strength. If these are in his hand, that means they are his to give to his people. They are his to disperse as he wishes to do that. These are God's things. Now, we might respect a person. We might note someone's influence or strength, but it's only recognized because God has given that to them. God has allowed them to have that. All riches and all honor come from him. Again, we might work for it, but he's the one who distributes. It's in his hand to make someone great, which means to grow them in their significance. It's in his hand to strengthen someone. That actually means in the Hebrew there to give them courage to prevail, to overcome. The point is God is great and God has no need. Everything a person might have, they have because God has allowed them to have it. He graciously gives. Our giving, when we give in the offering plate or, or however we decide to give back to God, it does not add to his wealth. It does not add to his majesty or any of that. Our giving like David did, is done in order to bless him. When we give with the purpose of blessing him, it, it is to worship. It's an act of worship, an act of praise. It's not just done out of obedience or some sense of legalism or a tax write-off or anything like that. It is done to honor the one 
who so abundantly has given to us. This is all taking place, by the way, at the end of David's life. And he knows that the Messiah is going to come. David has an understanding of what ultimately God will give the nation of Israel and to the world because he knows the law. He knows Abraham's seed is going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. That's what Genesis 12 promises him. And David's been promised this by God too, that through his line, this everlasting king, this eternal king is coming. And I think David had a really, really good idea of what was going to entail with that person because he wrote Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, if you've ever read it, if you've ever studied it, this is a little bit of it. He says in the very first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, we know where that comes from. We know where that is going to happen in the New Testament. David understood the crucifixion. I believe that he somehow prophetically, Peter calls him a prophet in Acts chapter two. He knew what was coming. He says in verses seven and eight, all who see me mock me, they smack their lip, they wag their head. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. That is literally what the Pharisees say about Jesus. When he's hanging on the cross, this is how they mock him. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. That's usually a word in, in Hebrew. That's usually used as a word for Gentiles. We would understand Romans have encircled me. They've surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. He writes in verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, David is saying, I know what God's going to give. I know what it's going to cost him to bless us for all eternity. I think David knows this. And for that, he worships. And he gives. He gives freely because he gives to bless God who has blessed him. We read on in verse 13. It says, so now, our God, we are thanking you and praising your glorious name. We might read that and simply sum it up in this word, these words. So now we worship. Now we honor him. Now we glorify him. We give thanks. The Hebrew word is yada. It means we confess our appreciations. We say now, now we give thanks to him. We praise your glorious name. Praise is the Hebrew mehalim, and it means we exclaim a hallelujah. We boast in God's name. His name indicates his will, his authority, his standing, his reputation. All of those things we can boast in. We can worship him. We can praise him. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not some magic incantation to get what we want. We are saying in our prayer that we submit to your will, to your authority, to your reputation. That is what matters most. When Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is what he's talking about. He's not saying just say my name and poof, those are the magic words. You get a new Ferrari or whatever happens. That's ridiculous. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus teaches. When we are in his will, when we are praying his will, living his will, when we pray in alignment with his will, he answers. The apostles knew this. 
That's how come when they're walking by the temple, they see a lame man. What do they say? Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. You see, so many people want the miracles of the apostles, but they don't want to submit their lives to the authority of Christ like the apostles did. Or they don't want to submit their life, they don't want to submit to the authority Christ has placed in their lives now. David understood. We worship God and we praise him because David had studied the law. David knew God's will. He was able to thank him and praise him according to his glorious name and all that that entailed. And when David has, then he has this, this realization or, or revelation right here in this prayer in verse 14. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as willingly as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. He says, who am I and who are my people? In comparison to God, what could we possibly equate to? All his power, all his majesty, I must seem so insignificant. David actually sings about this earlier in his life. He says, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, this is Psalm 8. He says, the moon and the stars which you've established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? And he concludes that psalm by saying, oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In comparison to his name, what is mine? In comparison to his will, what is my will? What is my authority? David, the king of Israel, the greatest king, the standard king, right? He is saying, who am I? What do I really have to contribute here? Who am I in comparison to such a being? And who are my people? Well, he already answered that back in verse 10. They are his. They are God's. They belong to him. He's the God of their father Israel. It's only because of him and his greatness and his love for Israel that they have any significance at all because he has blessed them. And because he has blessed them, they will now bless him. That we should be able to offer as willingly as this, he says. In other words, who are we that we should have the ability to give as we're about to give? Who am I as the king? Who am I to be able to organize such an offering such a such a giving to the greatest god david recognizes all things come from you and from your hand we've given you that's how because he supplied it because he's blessed us because he's given us if you go back up your page of your bible just a little ways back to verses three and five you'll see exactly what they were giving. And I'm not going to read all the text, but it's a lot. This is the gist of David's offering. 3,000 talents of gold. Now, I'm not a math whiz, so I actually use some commentaries and some tables to figure this out. 3,000 talents of gold would equal 112.5 tons of gold. That's a lot. I don't know how much that's worth in money, because like I said, not a math whiz. Okay? Wes might know. Uh, 7,000 talents of silver, that's 262.5 tons of silver. That's a lot of wealth. And that's just what the king is offering. The people of Israel, it says, gives more. On top of the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Again, just knowing that 3,000 talents is, a, is over 110 tons, they give 5,000 talents of gold. 
That's 187.5 tons of gold. And they actually give more because it says they give per, uh, a Persian gold coin uh, called the, the Derek. There's 10,000 talents of silver. That's 375 tons. 18,000 talents of bronze, 675 tons. 100,000 talents of iron. That's 3,750 tons. They are moving some metal, right? That's got to be worth at least a lot. A lot of money. I don't, I'm running out of adjectives. There was a lot there. What could that be worth today? I don't know. But David recognized that even in spite of all that wealth, all that gold, all the silver, all the iron, all the bronze, all those things, in spite of it all, it is minuscule compared to the riches of God. It's all his anyway. Even the stuff they were giving technically belonged to God. It's like the old joke where the scientists say, God, we really don't need you anymore. We can clone people. We can make our own people now. And God says, okay, let's have a contest. Uh, I'll make a man out of dirt. You make a man out of dirt. Scientist says, that's, that's fine because we've discovered that every element in the human body is actually found in the dirt. So we'll do it. And then God says, okay, let's go. And the scientist bends down. He grabs a big pile of dirt. And God says, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. I made that, right? It's all God's. It all belongs to him. Verse 15, it goes on, and David says, For we are sojourners before you and foreigners, or, sorry, foreign residents like all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. We are sojourners before you. Now, at, at its core, for hundreds of years, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, were sojourners. Whether Abraham was wandering through the land of Canaan, Jacob going back and forth between Laban and his father, whether it's Israel's time in the Egypt and their time wandering in the, in the desert, whether it's the time of the judges where they, they are still trying to establish the promised land. After the time of David, the people will slowly digress into idol worship and come back to Yahweh and back and forth. They travel. They fall away. They make things right. They repent. They fall away. Rinse, repeat for hundreds of years. And this mentality follows even into the New Testament way the church sees themselves. That they see themselves as sojourners. That we are not living for, this is not our home. This is not our, our eternal residence. His presence in heaven and, and eternity is. Peter says as much in 1 Peter 1, the very first verse. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles. He's not writing necessarily to actual exiles. He's writing to the church. That they understand this is not your home. We are living for our promised land. They were exiles of a scattered church, but the idea is they're, they're living focused on where they will reside for eternity. It's very similar to David's wording here, foreign residents, resident alien or resident exiles, like Peter says. And it's kind of ironic in a sense that David says, like our fathers were, because all of their descendants, both physical and spiritual, who abide in Christ are very similarly the same. In other words, Israel had settled in their promised land, but we live for ours. In our time in this exile, this sojourning, it is very short. David says as much. He says, our days on earth are like a shadow. It's brief. It's here one moment, the sun shifts, and it's gone. 
very thin. And yet he knows God is eternal. God lasts forever. And then he ends this verse by saying something that when you're reading this, it's got to stop you in your tracks. It's got to give you pause. David says, we have no hope. What? Do you know how much money is just sitting there, David? You know, God better give you hope, right? If, if we're buying something, there's no hope. What do you, hold on a second. David says, no, we don't, there is no hope. This idea, the word hope there is the Hebrew word mikvah. And it has to do with hopeful security. You understand David and all his riches and all his glory, earthly glory, he did not have what you and I have. He did not have the fullness of the hope that rests in Christ. David was looking forward to that day as were all the patriarchs. Jesus makes this very clear. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And we have to conclude if David, who was given the covenant in Genesis 12, 12, saw it in faith, the covenant made to him from God, David, through the covenant God made with him, would also see it. Especially since now it's more narrow. It's not just Abraham's descendants. It's now a specific tribe and a specific line of that tribe where this descendant of Abraham who's going to bless the whole world where he's coming from. They saw it in faith, but they didn't have it. The book of Hebrews clarifies this. After having mentioned David, Samuel, all the saints, who they don't go into a lot of detail about in Hebrews 11, the writer simply says, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. That something better is Jesus. The secure hope David did not have, we can have in him and in his cross. That Christ died to save us. Christ died to save sinners. To redeem us to himself. What greater blessing is there? What greater blessing exists than the cross itself? Than what it represents? When the early church begins, they, you notice only in the last hundred years or so, people started arguing about tithe. And whether or not it's really an issue to give 10% or should we give more? Should we give less? Does, the new, does Jesus ever talk about tithes? That only really started happening in the last hundred years because when the church first started, they were so grateful for the cross, they sold 100% and gave to the church. And I'm not saying, please don't think that's what I'm saying you should do. But they gave with joy. They gave excited. And we have to understand that heart behind that. They had looked for the Messiah. Messiah had come and redeemed them for eternity. And they're willing to give up everything for him. That's what Christ asked of us. Not that we do give up everything, but that our things not own us. And we have a willingness to let go of the things of the world because he is our treasure. He is where our heart resides. I mentioned that last week. David goes on. He says in verse 16, he says, O Yahweh, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name. It is from your hand, and all is yours. He's just reiterating here. We can only bless God because God has blessed us. We have to remember all this wealth, all this offering, it was given to build the house of God. 
Today, when the church receives offerings, we receive giving, it should be done to build the house of God. Yes, it pays the pastor's salary. It pays the administrative assistant and the youth pastor, but it also pays to keep the lights on, uh, advertising. It pays for ministry resources that come into our hands, books and, and things of that nature, the church sign, advertise, like I, said, I mentioned advertising. So all of those things are done not in an effort to build up a building or to build up a, a reputation for an organization, but for building the church of Christ, for building the the kingdom of God, to advance the gospel, to make disciples, to spread that good news that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And you might say, well, you know, I look around our church and I don't really see us making disciples. Really? That's happening right now. In this very moment, Teaching and preaching are all growing the Christian to be more like Christ. We are in the disciple-making process in this very moment. If you didn't come to church to learn, be challenged, to grow, to be encouraged, to be discipled, you have to ask, why did you come? Why did you want to be here today? Because if it was for entertainment, I mean, I've told a couple of jokes. They weren't that funny. You can laugh at that. It's not going to hurt my feelings. I know we have, I maintain, we have one of the best, if not the best, worship team in the southeast section of the Assemblies of God. I believe that. But if you wanted entertainment, there's concerts in Fargo every Friday with more laser lights, sound shows, and, and uh, fog machines and things like that. Maddie could hook you up with some, uh, a band or something if that's what you want, right? We come to church to be discipled, to grow spiritually, to grow the church, to encourage one another, to build up one another. Not just to grow an organization by numbers, though that sometimes happens, praise God. But we give, we give because God has blessed us, God has given to us, and, and we want to see others experience that. Amen? Being able to give back to him is a blessing when we give with the right attitude. We see that in, begins to be the message in verse 17. And I know, oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness. I, in the uprightness of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now, with gladness, I've seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. Willingly. They're not compelled to. They're not held at gunpoint or anything like that. Willingly. Why does that matter? Because God tries the heart. This is something we see all throughout Scripture. We see it very obviously in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 7, 9. Let the, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous for the righteous God. Test the hearts and minds. We see it in the New Testament era, 1 Thessalonians 2. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We know Jesus on many occasions knew the hearts and minds of his opponents, those people who were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who were naysaying and putting him down and so on. But what we can understand from this text today is that giving in itself, like I mentioned at the very beginning of the message, it is a test of the heart. It's a test of our devotion to the Lord. If the kids are taking notes, that's one of their answers. Do we love him or do we love our money? This very question was presented to the disciples. Who do you serve? 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The attitude of our heart when we give is very important. The Apostle Paul said, and we're very familiar with this verse, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I referenced last week, Jesus is discussing where our treasure lies. He says, don't store up treasures for yourself in heaven. I mentioned this briefly a moment ago. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroys, where thieves don't break in or steal. In the same chapter, a little earlier, Jesus also says, when you give, not if, but when. When you give, in the full context, he says, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. In other words, what, he, what he's getting at is when you give, don't ask for attention. You do it for God's glory, to bless God, not to receive some kind of earthly recognition. And this passage indicates two things. It's not if we give, it's when. And when we give, the recipient is the poor. That doesn't mean the pastor has to be dirt poor, but... Nobody? Okay. That was... When we give to the church, our efforts are meant to help raise up the poor, the poor in spirit and the poor financially. We have a benevolence fund here at Faith Assembly. I'm very proud of that. If there are those in the church or, or those we know of that need a little help, we, we are able to um, help them, to bless them. We're by no means social services or anything like that. But your pastor used to work for social services. So if they need those things, I'm happy to also help them fill out applications and things like that. We help where we can. That's part of being the church. Giving to the church helps in that endeavor. And we should be content. We should be content for that to be a part in our giving. David goes on, he says that God tries the heart. He delights in its uprightness. And he, David, in the uprightness of his heart, willingly offers these things. Now, in your Bible, the word things might be in italics. How many of you see that? Like it's the slanted words for those who don't know what italics kids listening okay some of you okay i know the esv doesn't always do that when something is in italics in your bible it doesn't mean you read it like this or something like that people have done that uh that's not why it's there okay typically the reason the translators or the the people who put our bibles in english do that is because in the original hebrew the original greek that word doesn't it's not there it's a part of the tense of the previous word the word that's all normal, right? And so what David is saying, these things, he's likely pointing to these. He says these, talking about the gifts. And we understand as readers these things he's likely pointing at. At the end of the day, David understood these were just things. These were just materials. Sorry. They were things that were precious metals, sure, but they were only precious because people had ascribed value to them. They only mattered because people wanted them to matter. These things had value, but their true value was subjective. I remember when I was doing my internship in Sri Lanka, I was uh, observing some of the kids on the beach, the the young romantics out there walking hand in hand. And, and most of that, by the way, comes from Western culture. They've observed on TV. They don't normally do that sort of thing. But when they get in an environment that seems American or European, they start to copy that. that you would go to McDonald's and people would be acting all kinds of inappropriate because that's how you act at McDonald's. 
It was a Western thing. And I remember going, we were driving by a beach one day, and I, I asked Newton, who was a Sri Lankan himself, I asked him, my, he was my driver, because they didn't trust me to drive in Sri Lanka either. Um, <laughs> Dale, Dale caught it. I said, Newton, do the guys send flowers to the girls here in Sri Lanka? Because I had a girlfriend back home, this beautiful girl. You guys have met her, she's my wife, but brownie points. Uh, I wanted to send her flowers because that's what she, she liked to get flowers. Made my girlfriend at the time, my wife, made her feel very special. And I, I tell this to Newton and Newton goes, no. Why would we send flowers? We grow flowers. They look nice. I said, yeah, but you know, it's kind of a romantic gesture. He said, Brother Jeff, we send food. You can't eat roses. I said, well, you can. Yeah. You know? And then I would tease him a little about the food that they ate compared to what I ate. It's, it's all about the value we ascribe to it. You know, Juliet says in, in Shakespeare, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, but who would care? Right? It's just a rose. It's just a, another flower. These things, their value, what I'm saying is they're subjective. A dollar is just a piece of paper with numbers on it at the end of the day. Why does it really matter? It matters because of what it represents, the hard work, the dedication, the value that we have placed upon it. The same goes for these things, these medals that were being presented to the temple. They were just things. And so with gladness, the people were willing to give these things as an offering to God because he mattered more to them. They understood this. Verse 18, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and prepare their heart to you. David's prayer was basically that the Lord would keep these things, this temple forever, and it would be a representation of the people's worship and their intentions in worship as long as that building would stand. That as long as the temple that they would build with these materials was there, the people's heart for God would be one of good intention, one of willingness to give to him, one of righteousness, one of gladness before the Lord. He says, prepare their heart to you so that their heart is focused on him. So their heart is centered and he is their top priority always. We we know they don't do this, right? The temple itself becomes a place of idolatry. In the time of Ezekiel, the prophet has a vision. He goes into the temple, and what's he see? He sees every creeping thing, beast, detestable things, idols of the house of Israel are carved into the walls around them. He sees elders burning incense to idols and so much more, what some translations call abominations. The temple ends up being destroyed. Israel ends up being taken into exile because they chose to mix up their priorities. Their priority wasn't God. It wasn't Yahweh. It began to be foreign gods. Whoever's blessed me lately. And we might say, well, where did they fall away? Where did it all start? We have no further to look than our last verse this morning. Verse 19. And give to my son Solomon a whole heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made preparation. Now Solomon will build the temple, but he will not keep the statutes. He will not keep the testimonies. He will not keep the commandments. He does it first. He's a great king. 
He's a very prosperous king. In fact, during, during, during Solomon's time, silver becomes as common as rocks. He's very wealthy. But Solomon will do everything the king of Israel was told not to do. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, The king shall not multiply horses for himself. What's Solomon do? One of the first things he does, he gathered chariots and horsemen. You can't have horsemen without having horses, by the way, for anybody trying to read a loophole into that. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He stationed them in the chariot cities. Read on in 2 Chronicles 9.25, Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So he had horses. He wasn't supposed to but he gets a lot of them. Deuteronomy 17 says, the king shall not multiply wives for himself. And what does he do? He's famous for it. Everybody knows this about Solomon. The king's, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, and the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not go along with them, nor shall, you go, shall they go along with you, for they shall surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Now, I'm the pastor, so I will take this. Okay, men, you're welcome. How many of you know one woman can be a lot of trouble, right? That's a joke, ladies. Please, it's a joke. Don't hit your husband. Send me the emails. They'll go directly to spam. He's the wisest man who ever lived, this Solomon, right? Again, that was a joke. Just kidding. Sorry. But Solomon's considered the wisest man who ever lived. And you see how easily he falls, how easily he is seduced. So David prays for him. David actually prayed before this chapter. He charged Solomon. Before he charged anyone else, he said to Solomon, he strictly tells him, as for you, my son, Solomon, know the, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. And a delighted soul, for Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And sadly, at some point, Solomon did not seek Yahweh. And he punished Yahweh, the Lord, punished Israel. In all of our lives, at some point, the things that don't matter, the things of this world, the pleasures of this life begin to take hold. And we no longer have things. Things begin to have us. So in our heart, God says, give. And give with the right attitude. Give with cheer. Give with gladness. Give to bless him because that is the blessing. We keep our priorities in line. We keep our devotion to him evident, if nowhere else, in our own life. A deeper, rich relationship with Christ. That's what matters. Our giving to his church reflects our love and devotion to him. We're going to move to close this morning. We've already taken up an offering. We're not going to do anything weird like that. Take up a second one or anything. We're not going to do that. But I would ask you this. And I'm not even just, I'm not talking about money in this question specifically. Okay? And I don't want anyone to feel condemned by this, but challenged. How much have you given to the Lord? How much of your life, you know, many times we say, Lord, take all of me, but in our hearts and in our minds, if we're honest, we'd say, but not that. 
We'd say, here am I, Lord, send me, but not over there. How many times do we give with a good attitude? How many times do we come to church with a good attitude, with the right attitude, with willingness and thankfulness? The Apostle Paul said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When we give, when we worship, when we praise, when we listen to the message, do we do it with the right heart? Do we do it with the right attitude? When, we, when the offering comes around, do we give as, a, as an act of penance or protection or legalism or something else? Or do we do it because we have received the greatest blessing a person could receive, the very love of God that laid down his life for our sins? Giving itself, if we are completely truthful, giving itself can quickly become an idol. I have a family member who gave enough money to have their name enshrined on a, on a pew. Never went back to that church, but every time when there was a family gathering or something there, they would walk down the aisle of the church, empty sanctuary, just to see their name. There it is. That was the, the focus. Not giving to bless God because they'd been blessed, but giving to just say, hey, look, I gave. It became an idol. It shows where our heart is with him. It shows our thankfulness for him. It shows our submission to him. And it demonstrates, above all, that we belong to him. I'm going to ask the usher, or not the ushers, the, the worship team. Wow. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. This morning, I would ask you to stand as we sing. We're going to close in one more song. And we'll do a prayer of dismissal. But this morning, I would ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, search my heart. What have I not given? Now, I'm not asking, again, I'm not referring to financials. What in my life does not belong to God? What is not under his authority? What is not yielded to him? Where is my heart? Where are my priorities? And where is my devotion this morning? Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart as we worship as we close.